This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Look to the the New Testament book of 1 Timothy for uh, our guests that may be first-timers here with us today or joining us online for the first time. My name is David Tarkington. I have the distinct honor to serve as the pastor of this church at First Baptist Church of Orange Park. I'm going to ask the guy, I had, we had turned the lights down for the video earlier, but I don't want, I, I met some friends up in the top corner. I don't want them falling asleep. So, oh, I told him I was going to call him out. So there we go. First Timothy, it's on page 991 in the Bible there in the pew. If you have a, I'm going to, sorry about that. Let me fix this mic. I think, I, did I break it? We'll find out. I don't know. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse three. Paul is writing, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of it today. You may be seated. Normally when Paul, the apostle, writes a letter, whether it be to a church by name or to an individual such as it is here, he um, usually uh, enters into the topic following a verse or two of thanksgiving, but apparently when writing to Timothy, he had enough, didn't have enough time for that. He went right into the point. He went right to the, the meat of the message. So following this salutation, here's the topic at hand that he jumps right into. Now I need to ask you a question, church members, family of God, those especially who have been in church for some length of time, perhaps years, um, You have heard dozens of sermons, likely, over your lifespan. You have been a part of Bible study classes and group discussions. And if you hear the word or the phrase, the two words, uh, false teacher, when it's said in a religious setting, think about what or who comes to mind. It may be a teacher from a totally different world religion. It may be somebody from no world religion or religion at all. Maybe one of the New Age philosophers that... Um, has been and continues to be popular in our world today. Maybe it's an extremist or even one of the leaders of what has been termed neo-atheism, some of the, the, the newer names that have hit the, um, hit the study books more, more recently. Or maybe for you, when you hear false teacher, you immediately go to a religious cult mindset and you start thinking of some of the leaders who either founded or are considered the founders and leaders of certain religious cults, those groups that are are close to Christianity, at least borrowing some of the scripture, but by adding scriptures and by changing meanings and by rewriting the inerrant word to fit their own belief systems, you come up with names like Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell or maybe someone who just has the facade of religion like L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. Or maybe when you hear the word false teacher, you immediately go to extreme names that that usually taught such out-of-bounds out of teachings that came along with extremism and, and, and even violence. Men like Charles Manson or Jim Jones or David Koresh. 
Or it could be many of those and many others. But when Paul references the false teachers here, when he is referencing these false teachers and he is not cutting, cutting them any slack whatsoever, he's going straight at them, he is speaking negatively, how they negatively impact the church in Ephesus He's not talking about people that are outside the church. He's not talking about people who are standing outside the fellowship and teaching a different teaching. He's not talking about those who are creating new religions. He's not talking about those that would be considered extremists within the the body of faith. He is actually talking about those who are in the room. He's talking about those who, if you want to use modern vernacular, are members of the church and serve in different ways. And perhaps have been in the body for some time. Men and women who are like family because in many cases they are family. That's who he's talking about. And so sometimes when we start going into the false teacher, we just, here's a lane here and here's a lane here and here's our lane over here and everybody else is over there. But what Paul is doing, he's talking about those that are in our lane but are not teaching truth. Thus, the letter. And since God's word is never irrelevant and is always appropriate, we see this letter as needed now more than ever in an era when there are so many voices speaking loudly. It's hard to hear the still small voice when everybody's screaming. Have you ever noticed that? And it's hard to follow the truth when there are so many lies that look so true. Truthiness, we call it. And it's there. And woe to the church that settles for an hour a week of doctrinal dump and hope that's enough. Because it's not going to be, and it never has been. God's word, that immutable, inerrant word of God, giving us a, a letter here written to a church, to a pastor in a certain era, in a certain place, in a certain time, geographically, in a certain location, in Ephesus, but is relevant today because his word is a living word. And in an era today when there are so many speaking lies, and there are so many who are speaking lies within the church under the allure of deeper teaching is often how it's disguised, it draws in many. And the church suffers, not necessarily in numbers, by the way, though we can, all, we can go ahead and declare the numbers of those that attend churches are not what they used to be. You, those of you that have been here for any length of time can recognize that we have about a third of the human beings in the room than we had in 1993. I mean, it's just a numbers game if you want to go there. Of course, Clay County is a bit different than it was in 1993. Uh, There are people living in really nice houses that in 93, if they'd have lived there, they'd have been in a tent in the middle of a swamp. Change is happening. And so as change happens, it doesn't necessarily mean because the church um, has a lot of people that it's doing well. Because there are churches that... um, are suffering and yet you wouldn't know it because they're not suffering in numbers because there are a good number of churches with thousands of people still gathering in the room, many more gathering online, multiple campuses being launched left and right, and franchise ministries that, would, that are so successful they would make uh, any modern business uh, jealous of, the, of how they are doing their version of growth. But they too may be suffering from an Ephesian issue. And if you think small church means healthy church, let me just go ahead and say, there are some small churches that are very sick. And there are some large churches that are very sick. So size of the church and the amount of money in the, in the budget and the amount of people in the room does not mean the church is healthy, necessarily. 
because there are smaller ones that face the very same issue Timothy's church faced. I would dare say Timothy's church was not a mega church, but it faced the issues. Health and godliness is not graded by the typical four B's that most Baptists grade their church growth by. You know the four B's. Have you not been taught the four B's? You grade it based on what the other Baptist churches you know of are doing so you know where you fit on the scale. That's baptisms, size of your budget, how many buildings, and because I don't want parents mad, bottoms in the seat. That's how you grade. That's what pastors used to do for years and they'd go to conferences and they'd gather around the hallway and drink coffee. How many are you running now? How many baptisms did you have? Hey, you got a building program going on? Those things are not necessarily bad, but that is not how you grade healthiness. That is not how you grade healthiness, that by itself anyway. God gives us clear warnings about the dangers of ignoring the details in this letter. Therefore, the wise should take to heart what the word states. There is a calling out that takes place here. Now, I would say there are two kinds of evangelical Christians in our nation today. Now, you're going, only two? Well, there are many more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them in two groups. I figure if you got sheep and goats and you got wheat and tares, I can categorize Christians in two groups. Not because I'm the king of baptisms or anything, but because <laughs> it just fits for my notes. There, uh, and I'm, well, I'm not talking about doctrine either. I'm actually talking about attitude. So two types of Christians, and let's just go ahead and say they're real Christians, just to kind of categorize that. But I'm talking about attitude. There are those kind of Christians who are nice. Pretty simply put. Nice Christians, the ones you meet in person that shake your hand, hug your neck, smile on their face, and actually say they are glad to see you and they're not lying. Nice Christians. And then there's the online version. You find them on Twitter and Facebook a lot. For these, kindness has been abandoned and anger is now their fuel. These are the people who could read a post by someone that says, nice weather we're having today. And then they would respond with something like this. Only a neo-pagan with woke theology believing CRT is good with empty doctrine and patriarchal leanings would declare that anything in this sin-sick, Satan-serving society filled with depraved wretches who have stolen the rainbow, voted wrong, sat for the national anthem, cheered for a professional sports team, watched a sitcom and actually laughed, or ever laughed in public with a smile on their face, thinking things are jokes at times, playing Bethel music in their church and on their radio, and streaming church services online by, by, and letting a woman speak in the building would ever say such drivel. God bless you, is usually how they end it. So there's two kinds of Christians. And what's funny is the nice Christian and the angry Christian are often the same person. Because the person online often doesn't reflect the person in the room. People say a lot of things online that they would never say face to face. And those that would say that kind of stuff face to face, oh, I hope you don't meet them. But they think it's their calling sometimes. Thus, in an attempt to not be a jerk that is so obviously present in our little religious subculture, many have sought to just be nice. Just be nice. Can't we all just get along? Has been the mantra. Now, being nice is not wrong. It's just weak. And it's wimpy. And it's the easy way out because nice and kind are not the same thing. Being nice is not wrong, but in an attempt to be nice and kind to all and to simply, you know, slap a coexist bumper sticker on your car and think everything is okay because you're just trying to love your neighbor, some have actually abandoned the role of actually lovingly and for the sake of the gospel, confronting and calling out those in their own family, church family, denominational family, 
who are wrong. Wrong teaching left unaddressed never leads to truth. It always leads to moderate or liberal beliefs. And let me just say moderate and liberal beliefs. That's it. I, I almost didn't put that in the notes because this is so hard to address liberal beliefs in our culture in America today because most people can't think of liberal and conservative without immediately going to politics. They just can't even, they don't even realize those words existed outside of the political realm. Now that's an important realm, but I'm talking to Christians in the church. Many self-proclaimed liberals today cannot truly define what they're liberating. And likewise, many self-proclaimed conservatives don't really know how to express what they should be conserving without defining it or running through bullet points defined by some political party or a news media uh, outlet or website or some political action group. Now, there's a place for that, I guess, but that's not the place behind the pulpit today. That's not even what I'm speaking of. Don't get me wrong. Those topics are important and not to be ignored. I'm going to say that. Those are important topics not to be ignored. So for those that are preparing now to talk to me after the service about my political beliefs and how they need to line up with yours, stop and listen to what the Word of God says. Wrong teaching left unaddressed never leads to truth. See, it's one thing to say, we believe the Bible is true. I mean, we put it on our website. We affirm it in our statement of faith. We probably have, what, I don't know, 80% of our church members that could say that understandably, what, what they mean. I would hope it'd be 100, but I, saying we believe the Bible is true and then being able to explain why you believe it's true and how you believe it's true are two totally different things. Therefore, Paul is telling Timothy to be very careful because what has happened is false teachers have shown up within the church body. And Paul is not saying, he's not saying, hey, Timothy, I am ordaining you to be a holy jerk about all this. That's not what he's saying. But it is very clear that there is no equivocation when it comes to the task. We talk about being called by God to serve him, and that is a holy moment. In the life of a believer, when he calls you to himself and you surrender your life to him and are saved, and then if he calls you into a certain area of service. But Paul is telling Timothy to call out those in the body that have been getting a pass and are developing influence. Call them out and <laughs> call them by name. Paul does that, by the way. You know, that's not very nice. No, but it's very kind because it makes it clear who the false teachers are and he calls them by name he says call them out so they may repent before that's the goal we don't call people out just to, so we can win the battle but so that they may repent of the sin that is within them that they are teaching from the attitude that is overwhelming them it is very clear he states that we must remove them from teaching they have no right or ability to teach they cannot be in leadership in any level and they must be removed from any influence for their influence is killing the church that's the calling out. And Paul warned them this was going to happen. Now, we went through the book of Acts a while back. It took us a while, but we went through the book of Acts, if you remember that. And we, we spoke of in Acts chapter 18, 19, 20, about that time when Paul was in Ephesus, right here where Timothy has been called the pastor. Now, Paul is no longer there. The church in this city was birthed at a very difficult and challenging time, as is the case with every church in the New Testament. And let me just go ahead and say, as is the case with every church in USA in 2022, it is a difficult and challenging time to plant and birth a church. Paul stayed in the city of Ephesus for a time during his second journey. He taught in the synagogue and then in the hall 
of Tyrannus. His ministry was powerful. Lives were changed. People saved. I hope you remember this as we went through this a few months back. Idol makers in the city came to run him out of the city and try to kill him because they were impacted by his influence and the influence of the church. The church was birthed and became an essential means of reaching the world there and the world beginning in the center of Ephesus where it was planted there, that church. But at that time, Paul shared this warning to the church. Here it is in Acts 20, verses 25. He says, and behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's telling them, you're not, I'm not coming back. You're not going to see me again. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And here's the warning, verse 29. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. Did you catch that? It's not the evil entities outside the church sneaking in. You know, we, we like to, we love the holy huddle, build a fort Christianity that has been so prevalent in our culture for many, many decades and is rebuilding even now. We just need to hide from everything out there. Paul is saying that the wolves will be within the church. They will rise up among you. Men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Five years earlier, he said this would happen. He called it, and it's happening. Like wolves, the enemy has infiltrated the family. Now, the letter to the under-shepherd Timothy is intended for Timothy to have instructions on how to call out and to have the boldness to call out the wolves, recognizing he's not alone, that Paul is there as he's writing, the Holy Spirit is empowering him, and there are good believers in the church that do not know what is happening but need to see that revealed to them. Paul modeled this by re in his own life by removing Hymenaeus and Alexander from the church in the past. Let me just say, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Actually, it's coming up, but he references that. So Paul's not asking, a good leader would never ask somebody in his church to do something that he wouldn't do himself, but he is not there. So he says, Timothy, call them out, call them by name, get them out. If they repent, put them back through, church discipline is good. If they don't repent, don't let them join the church down the street and not tell them who they are. You watching 60 Minutes tonight? You might want to catch that. Baptists have, uh, we're not the only ones, but we're in the news now. We've been notorious for dealing with wolves in the flock and just keeping it quiet and hoping everything goes away while the wolf goes to another flock and does the same thing. Paul says, no. So not only are you to call them out, but you're to correct their doctrine. Years ago, I read an article that said doctrine is what people were looking for in a church. I remember Sheldon and I and some others on our staff were talking about that. I think Dr. Herod was even here at the time. We're talking about doctrine. Doctrine is what people are wanting. And good doctrine, solid doctrine, good teaching, that's what doctrine means, biblical doctrine. You know, I wanted to believe that was true, and at a level, I do believe it's true for many. But I'm not sure in the era of attractional Christianity that doctrine is something people are consciously seeking. I think eventually they seek it, but I don't know that they are consciously seeking. I think uh, a family moves to a new town. They're not, maybe, I hope and pray doctrine's at the top of the list, but sometimes is, uh, do they have good music? Do I enjoy the music? Do they have a good children's ministry? Do they have a youth ministry? Can my kids find a friend? Is it near my church or my house? Is it near my school? Doctrine is important eventually. 
kids' ministries, youth events, women's gatherings, men's retreats, music styles, funny pastors, all of that. These seem to be more of what people are looking for. And if you believe the social media posts and things offered by many churches in our culture and advertised, it seems to be the most marketable version of Christianity in our culture today. However, those things seem to be a little more than novelties. And as you know, what happens with novelties, they become dated quickly. And if you reach them with this, you've got to keep them with that. If you reach them with a concert, you got to keep them with a concert. If you reach them with a, a, a comedy routine, you better keep them. With, you're not going to keep them unless you have another better, funnier comedy routine. It's this industrial version of Christianity that turns the church into an assembly line where we're just adding pieces and eventually we're done. Now what's funny, as you start looking at this, when the novelties become novelties and becomes relevant and real to most people, you'll realize a crowd can be gathered when the bait is right or attractive. But eventually doctrine matters. A crowd can be gathered, but a congregation won't be built on novelties. And a church won't be built on novelties. What's funny is that those who look to the superficial things that many Christians seem to be drawn to often find themselves within their own like-minded group of Pharisees. They won't call it that because that sounds rude to call themselves a Pharisee, but that's what happens. Because you've got, you got two sides of the type of Christianity that is so prevalent in our culture today. You've you got the fluffy, attractional, churchy stuff. But here's the thing. Equally as wrong and equally as dangerous is the flip side of that, defined as the going deeper group. We just need to go deeper just want to go deeper. This is the group that perpetually, eventually, and almost always complains that they're not being fed. Just not being fed. I just felt, you know, I need to, I need to go somewhere I could be fed. We have two grandchildren. Did you know that? <laughs> You'll be here soon. I'm waiting before I put the picture on the screen, but we have two. One is just a few weeks old now and little boy everything's good we're just protecting him from all you people that's what the doctor said don't get out for a while so we're just all right then we have uh, our granddaughter who's two and a half two, she's learning things she's learning what not to say she's learning what tone of voice not to use she's learning things that most of us don't think about it anymore. She's learning, she, and, I'm, and, and in that first year and that or so as we were watching her mature, we look back at old photographs, it seems like, oh my goodness, look how much she's changed in just a short amount of time. But when she was born, she didn't use a spoon. And it was months before we, we had a spoon for her to get her food with, and it was that mushy, gross stuff that babies eat. But it was a weird-looking spoon, too. It was basically a toothbrush with a thing on the end. It was shaped just like a toothbrush. It was kind of thick on the end. And you know how it is. They put the food on it, and they go, Oom, and it goes right there and never get it in the mouth. You know, it's that little thing. So over time, she learned how to use the spoon. And when the spoon became so frustrating, she learned that fingers work, too. So she went there. But here's what I noticed, that she actually figured out pretty quickly how to feed herself. The tragedy would be if she was 25 and I'm still using a spoon to try to help her eat. The go deep group says, I just don't get fed. And sometimes that's true because there's superficial things and fluffy Christianity out there that's all about feel good stuff. 
But these are spectrums, right? One end of the spectrum is empty, prosperity-driven, verse of the day, Christian mindfulness with the goal of getting your best life now and, and fueling that emotion. And on the other end is this very dry, supercritical echo chamber of study group junkies. Paul said, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, this is not a condemnation against Steve Tony because he likes family tree research or any of you who do genealogy stuff. That's not what it's speaking about. But it does allude to the unhealthy obsession that some in our culture today have with such. And in this era, the false teachers in the first century that Timothy is addressing are those who were, who were influenced by extra-biblical writings, such as the book of the Jubilees and the biblical antiquities of Philo, or Philo, depending on how you say it. I've seen it both ways. These were fanciful retellings of Old Testament stories with what we would call today artistic license. Let me just let that sink in. They were looking at extra biblical stories rather than the inerrant word of God. They abandoned the only thing they could read that had truth from beginning to end with no mix of error to take a paraphrased version that was more artistic and more exciting and, and they created more adventure. It's kind of like if you got your Bible doctrine from the Russell Crowe Noah movie and now you're looking in the scriptures for the rock men that don't exist. Or, you know, this happens even today. That's what he's speaking about. In the synagogues, the, the rabbis were called the teachers of the law. That was their title. That's a rabbi. These false Christian leaders within the church, or those that aspired to be Christian leaders in the church, wanted to be new covenant versions of the Old Testament teachers of the law. Why? Because others look up to them. It's influence. It's power. They all wanted to be the smartest guy in the room. And they wanted to make sure everybody knew it. They desired esteem. And as these types of leaders increased in their influence, they decreased the impact of the fruit of the Spirit within their own lives. Unlike the Judaizers, whom Paul referenced and dealt with in another, another letter and another church, these were, Judaizers were those who were influencing early churches such as the Galatian church. These people in Ephesus, as John Stott says, were speculators. They, they treated the law as a happy hunting ground for their own personal speculations. I know the Old Testament says this, but what about that? What if this? And they speculate and they add to it. And, they, and you know that's still happening. They likely didn't intend to be heretics, but they became heretics if they were to get, uh, left unaddressed. Because what their intention was, we just want to go deeper in the scripture. They found more truth in the margins than in the actual words by their own definition. Now, Christians in our nation and culture today, because we're human beings, we are drawn to the very same things. We are. I'm drawn to, I mean, a, a film comes out, and if it's exciting and interesting and has a great story, we're, people are drawn to it. They want to see it. They want the adventure. They want the extra stuff. Then if it comes out online and you're streaming it and the old days when you had DVDs, you want that extra DVD for the, the extra commentary, for the the, the cut scenes to see what it could look like. It's all that extra stuff. I'm, maybe I'm the only one drawn to that kind of stuff, but I like that stuff. They were doing the same thing with the word of God. Christians in our, nature are, are in our nation are, in our culture are drawn to this. For, for example, we have the inerrant, immutable word of God. 
I had the privilege and honor of coaching some church planters this past week, and I had to hear some of them preach. Man, these guys, let me just tell you that uh, the, God has got some great things going in the state of Florida with some of the churches that are going to be launched here in Jacksonville and beyond. But some of these guys just, what's the only criticism? It says you need more reps. You know how to become a better preacher? You preach more. And then one guy, I just talked to him, I said, listen, you are, you're like one of those cowboy storytellers. You can tell a story and I'm drawn in. But you had a 15-minute message, and 10 minutes of it was your story. Oh, that's great. It was a fun story. But when the Word of God, which is the only resource that is inerrant and immutable and life-changing, is used as a proof text for a story you want to tell, you have unintentionally told the audience that the Word is nothing more than an add-on to my really cool story. This still happens. Let me just say, our doctrine is built, our understanding of who God is, is built from a lot of different resources. So let me just go ahead and throw some of these out. And I've read some of these, and some were enjoyable, and some of them were terrible. But let me just, most of them were terrible. Some Christians in our culture today base their understanding of biblical truth on writings such as Left Behind, or the Bible Code, or the Harbinger, or Jesus Calling, or heaven is for real, or 90 minutes in heaven, or your best life now, or the prayer of Jabez, or the circle maker. I could have added about 50 or 60 more, but I got tired. Now, for those of you that don't like to read as much, there are a lot that gain their insights on biblical truth from questionable podcasts. Hey, you realize that a podcast is available if a guy buys a microphone. I mean, I have a podcast. I quit doing it because I was the only one listening to it. We put our sermons up, but we had another one. So podcasts, questionable podcasts, YouTube clips, and many, quote, faith-based films. Man, you got to see this new Christian movie. You got to see this Christian movie. I, maybe because I like entertain, being entertained. That's fine. It's not a sin to like a Christian faith-based film. I do think it's a sin if that's all the Bible you read that week because that's not the Bible. But they were acting out Bible stories. <laughs> it's not the same. That's not the same. Not all these books are bad. Well, all those books I mentioned are bad. You're going, but I've got those books. They're bad. And when you donate them to the library, we thank you for them, and then we put them in a box. A big green one, metal. It's in the back. Because we vet them. Because we don't want anybody else reading them. The study of God's word is vital and is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So books aren't bad, but none of those are the word of God. And I read a lot of books, but they don't replace the word of God. The go deeper crowd isn't always wrong either. Sometimes uh, the church isn't going deep. Sometimes the Sunday school class is 45 minutes of updates and how was your week and, and oh, this is funny and, and when's our next fellowship and oh, now we got 10 minutes to do a Bible story. Let me do the story and then throw a scripture. I mean, if you've been in that class, you know what I mean. I don't know what class that is. So now if you're thinking, which one is he talking about mine? I don't go to your class. I don't know. But I've been in church my entire life and I've been in those classes. And sadly, when I'm not prepared, especially as a young man, I was leading those classes. God forgive the go deeper crowd isn't always wrong. Book studies aren't always bad either. We have book studies in our own church and we'll do more. But when more emphasis is placed on the book explaining the book than the book that is being explained, we have problems. Doctrine matters even for those who just want a little practical advice and marriage advice and finance advice. 
doctrine matters because it's the foundation for all of that other. Now wrapping up, not only are we to call, is, is he call, telling them to call them out and to correct their doctrine, finally he is saying let's charge forward in this. In verse 5 it says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Good doctrine without love is not good doctrine. Did you catch that? Good doctrine without love is not good doctrine. Good doctrine without a pure heart is not good doctrine. Good doctrine without a good conscience is not good doctrine. Good doctrine without sincere faith is not good doctrine. Good doctrine as we define it without that, all of those things that God through the Holy Spirit and the writing of Paul to Timothy has told us our charge is, our aim is, is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience is a sincere faith to have really good teaching but to be none of that to be evident in your life. You are just like a, a clanging symbol. You're just noisy, good teaching, but not life-changing. Timothy was charged to move forward in a very difficult and uncomfortable confrontation. Can you imagine when Timothy read that letter, he's reading it, he's going, oh, I knew this was an issue. We were just hoping it would go away. We were just hoping that people would begin to realize that this guy is, a, is, is just not exactly a good teacher. That this guy is teaching his opinion and using scripture to support his already preconceived ideas. But Timothy recognizes that's not happening. It would not be easy for him, but it would be right. It would be needed, and he could not and would not and should not deal with this situation in his own power. But here's the reality. This isn't just a history lesson. Every church is called to do the very same today. To keep tight the guardrails on the doctrinal understanding of what the Word of God teaches and not live in the gray areas. We, can ignore, we cannot ignore heresies just so we can be called nice. I mean, you get this in the, uh, the groups that want uh, every religion represented on stage for an event. Depends on the event, I guess. But in most cases, can't we all just get along as... as it's just an easy way to ignore what the Word of God says. Yeah, we should get along. You, you should be kind. But you should never be apologetic for that which the Word of God says. And we're in a culture today where people, are, people who have been raised in church and are in church are abandoning the inerrant, immutable teaching of the Word of God because they want to be viewed as nice. But we must not do so. We must be kind and with love, with a pure heart and a good conscience, with sincere faith. Stand firm in the faith. Why? Because doctrine matters and because truth matters. And what is truth? That which is true for all people, all times, all circumstances, and is not something to be voted upon in a business meeting or an election. Truth is truth, and it matters because God is truth. Pray with me, if you will. Father, as we come to this closing portion of the service, we recognize that Ephesus was a church that was a mess. Ephesus was a mess. They had allowed false teachings and false teachers to infiltrate the church in such a way that it was almost too late before it was addressed. 
It had gone on so long that Paul, we recognize, heard of this while being far away. Oh, wow. Apparently, rumors of what's happening in other churches down the street and in other cities and other states was not something we created in our own culture, but it's been going on since the beginning of, of the history of the church. But in this case, we are thankful that what Paul heard was addressed. And as Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus through their pastor, Timothy, I am challenged and encouraged even today to recognize that as you have placed First Baptist Church of Orange Park here, to recognize that, that drift always happens in any organization unless the direction is continually corrected. Lord, help us to run straight to you, to hold fast and hold firmly to the word of God as your inerrant, immutable guide and word, your living word, to recognize that truth is not changeable due to cultural expectations and norms. But also, Lord, as we read through this and we recognize what you have said throughout your word, that you at no level have called us to be unloving, supercritical, perpetually angry representatives of you to the world you've actually called us to reach. So help us, Lord, to understand how that all fits. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, to be loving, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, not just the neighbors that look like us, act like us, vote like us, live like us, but our neighbors who are so different, who do not want to love us back to our community and our world that is, is foreign to the truth because of the depravity of sin that is natural for them. Lord, help us to show love to them, actual love, not, not nice love, but kind biblical unwavering love founded in your truth but also lord help us to recognize that we can't show that unless we know that so for those in the room today and those online that are not believers that have yet to say yes to you who have um, struggled in their faith because they have a, a doctrinal understanding that's a mile wide and an inch deep and they, they recognize that even now and they do need to go deeper but not in a small pharisaical judgmental group but in a family that holds true to your teaching and recognizes that you really are the only king. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for revealing truth to us. I pray that we're thankful for you.